Welcome to season two of Startup Happy Hour. Grab a drink and join us to hear how startup founders and visionaries are using their bright ideas in cutting edge technologies to make a positive impact in our communities and help shape our future. These conversations will inspire you and show you how you too can turn your new and exciting ideas into reality. Before we begin, I just wanna tell you about the sponsor for this episode, Content Allies. Content Allies helps B2B tech companies build and run revenue generating podcasts. They set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. All you have to do is show up and have engaging conversations and they'll handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Startup Happy Hour. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Michael Kowalczyk. He is the director of operations at Code Labs, and I'm really excited to bring him on and talk about his short but very exciting journey at Code Labs so far. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Diana. Very, very happy to be here today. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you because you started at Code Labs not too long ago as a project manager, and now you're the director of operations. So that's super exciting. And this is why I love startups, because things like this can happen. You can start you know, right out of college as a project manager or as a developer or in any position and quickly rise to the top. So I would love to hear about your journey through Code Labs from when you first started. But before you dive into that, can you just give people a better description of what Code Labs is? Yeah, absolutely. So, Code Labs, we are a smart building technology startup headquartered here in Detroit, Michigan. We're a 50, 60 person startup with kind of our, our business sales operations running out of, out of Detroit. And then actually, you know, 40, 50 team members in, in Kosovo which is a country in Eastern Europe where a lot of our, our technology and software development happens. Um, what we do is we go into commercial buildings, primarily primarily large commercial portfolios that have all sorts of technology for heating, cooling, lighting of buildings, electrical, fire systems. And the way this industry has progressed over time has been that like these systems are developed separately. And so now if you're an operator trying to manage one of these places, uh, you have to you know, manage six different passwords, have six different looks and feels for, and six is on the low end, it can go higher than that as well, for how to control these things. So Code Labs comes in, simplifies all those operations, and then we layer on kind of machine learning algorithms and optimizations to make buildings more sustainable, to bring in you know, fresh air, monitor and maintain air quality in there, building a more dynamic, more healthy building experience for, for operators and for you know tenants and occupants as well. Got it. So for people who aren't in the industry, how does building operations work right now? Is who manages the operations? Is it the owner of the building or is there actually somebody, a, a job out there uh, of somebody that just manages operations of the building? Mm -hmm. So there's the, the you know, owner who there's a couple of different ways they can go about it. They can actually bring on their own team internally. And that also depends kind of on their portfolio and how it's set up, or they can work with a, a third party property manager who is, you know, it's their responsibility to, to look after some of, some of these things. 
typically from a, a software interface perspective, a way a lot of these buildings are um, you know, operated is through a, a computer that's sitting in the basement of a building. It's a 1990s window machine that people are afraid to update because what happens if it stops working? You know, your building stops working and you can't have that. And so the, the technology in the industry has really just crawled as far as compared to some, you know, smartphones and everything else we've really seen happen on the internet. And yeah, typically you have one person who's sitting there watching all these different systems or a couple of people in a team. And then you will actually use outside contractors to come do the service when you identify a problem or that's also something you can you can take on in-house as well. But it's like one person watching or a couple of people watching and then working with many different vendors and subcontractors to actually maintain and keep these buildings running smoothly, which is something if you're not thinking about, you just completely take for granted the fact that, you know, you're comfortable in your space uh, until you're not. Totally. Got it. So how are you guys able to take all of these different vendors that a building is working with so far? Because you said a lot, a lot of times right now, buildings will have one vendor for their heating and cooling, another vendor for electric, another vendor for something else. And so how are you able to combine all of these different vendors into one system? Or are you able to work with any vendor out there? Or are you, do you only work with specific types of vendors? So overall, we're, we're vendor agnostic which is actually a big selling point for owners and operators, meaning that, let me just start by saying this, the way that we kind of directly do what we do is bringing these systems that are typically, you know, locked into the basement of these buildings, we're bringing that information to the cloud. So we'll go in, we'll work either with uh, one of our partners or do it ourselves to drop uh, a gateway or some sort of device where all the building information flows to that. And then that's our kind of like one or maybe in a building anywhere from like one to 20, depending on how many floors and the size and things. You know, we have these endpoints there, pull all that to the cloud. And now across the entire portfolio, we can do, we do all this data processing in the cloud to standardize the way that it looks. We make setting up these interfaces much more kind of rapid and scalable. The other kind of really crazy thing that happens in this industry is every, and let's just talk about HVAC because it's you know the primary thing that needs to be managed within a building. Tritium Niagara is a massive player. They've done a lot of really good things for, for the space and they're probably the most you know dominant software platform in the market. And the when you install a Tritium system, you're typically like manually configuring that so the way that it looks and feels it's not like you just download an app and uh, everything's pre-populated i mean that's kind of what we're doing as we bring things to the cloud and so typically somebody is manually configuring and designing and whoever that person is who knows these very proprietary systems that like you have to be trained and have experience into how to set this thing up whatever design design decisions they make from the naming of um, for example, this room I'm in, there's there's a temperature in here. One person might call that a zone temperature. The other person might call it a, just a ZT or a ZNT. And there's all these different naming conventions. And if you're a large portfolio operator, it becomes a whole big mess and nightmare to have completely, you know, non non consolidated, non conforming 
naming conventions and also a, a whole different look, just a look to the system that you need to provide a team who's going to be able to manage and, and work with these things. And so we bring that all to the cloud and we just we clean the whole thing up as, as a base. Like that is what we see as like the ante to play in this space. If you're not doing this, then you can't actually build and sell scalable, you know, building software technology, because if it's custom at every single building, you know, how are you ever going to reach scale with that? And so that's for us, that's like the very base and foundation of what we do. And then on top of that, you know, there's, there's other, a lot, a lot of other cool things we're doing with IOT and, you know, analytics as well. So you can basically work with any HVAC company, any electric company and get them integrated with your software and mm -hmm. track their data that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one, our software we call code OS, and then we can work with just about anybody. We do always recommend and a lot of time owners and operators are looking at us and to make recommendations as to, you know, what vendor to pick or uh, what technologies to supply. And we don't have, we don't play favorites. Like we don't have any particular person, but we will always recommend towards things that are open and, and just offer more future proofing and, and better APIs and these things that really looking at from the owner's perspective, it's like, you don't ever want to get stuck or lock yourself into a proprietary system. And so we can work with anybody and then we'll, you know, we'll kind of try to recommend those that we think provide uh, equipment and technology that plays, plays well with other, other systems. Got it. And is there a reason why you guys are just focused on commercial buildings at the moment and not, you know, like residential high rises and things like that? The initial answer is that the operations of building in commercial spaces are just so much more complex. And so you actually need a different solution to manage a, you know, a 40 story building with multiple tenants at different times and in all sorts of different variables than the solution that you would need to manage, you know, a, a one family home type of thing within looking. And then the example you mentioned is like apartment complexes, these things kind of blurs the line between that. One of the things, you know, the abilities that you have within the office space is like you're relying on your, your landlord, your property manager to really control the, the temperature and the lighting in your spaces. And it's kind of on a fixed schedule that you that the, you know, the company, um, the tenant actually agrees to on their lease to say, I want my temperatures between 68 and 72 degrees and my lighting and everything to be on from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so in, the, in this residential space, the apartment buildings, you have some of those elements for the base building systems. But I, it's for in, the, in, in that case, in the tenant's best interest and the property manager's best interest to put control of the space into the hands of the actual individual, you know, the individual occupying the unit where they want to be able to control their temperature more and they don't want to be locked into these different times. So it's just, it's a, it's a little bit of different scenario around optimization and invisibility of systems. That being said, the, the, what we call base building systems, the really the core of what is supplying, you know, the heating, cooling, lighting, electrical, the power, the energy metering to the residential units we can go in and we do go in and, you know, monitor those, control those things and give people the tools to, to better manage that aspect of those buildings. Makes sense. 
tell me about the like what what does I'm just wondering what does the competitive landscape look like for you guys are there other companies out there doing this and I guess like where I'm coming at this from is with certain industries, especially older industries that have been around for a while, like buildings have been around forever. You know, you've needed heating and cooling buildings forever. With industries like this, I've noticed that they tend to be a little behind in technology. Like in my mind, I'm like, well, it's it's obvious. Like if you just asked me, you know, prior to this interview, prior to me doing research on your company, how a large commercial building is run with their heating and cooling, electric, all of these things, I'd be like, well, yeah, like the, it's just all on a software somewhere and somebody with an iPad, you know, is controlling all of this. Like that would have been my best guess. I wouldn't have guessed that there's, you know, all these servers or computers in the basement of the building that somebody is looking at and monitoring all day. So I'm just wondering, like, are there, are there a lot of other companies out there doing the same thing? Or are you guys sort of front runners in the space, which, you know, which would shock me, but I, I've been shocked by other things. So the, the, the landscape is really pretty interesting. You have your, uh, what we call the big four, it's your Johnson, your Siemens, your Honeywell, people that have set up all the, the base building systems, but their primary business is in manufacturing hardware and supplying that out to these other different vendors. And they're not really in the software game, even though they, they tried to be. And so we don't really look at them as competitors, but they are, any building we go into, we're running into those types of systems and we're needing to work with them and to integrate and pull that data to the cloud while they keep, you know, at their core business of kind of su supplying this. And they, just by nature of this, it's hard to ship any product that doesn't, you know, th th there's a full stack of, of operations that of like something that needs to be installed all the way to, it needs to be displayed and be managed. And so, uh, you know, that's why these Johnsons and these Honeywells have kind of, they do provide default kind of software to monitor them. And what we have found and what others in the industry are doing as well, it kind of gets more into our competitive landscape, is that there is really a need to, to surface this information in a better way, to make it more uh, approachable and interactable. Another interesting thing that's just happening in this industry and in a lot of industries is uh, your typical building operator, it's like a, it's like a trade. And so there's not as many new people coming into the industry and with an aging workforce, it's like, how are we training people to engage with systems that are so far behind and so different than what, you know, your typical person just experiences in everyday life, which is a challenge in and of itself. But from our competition standpoint, there's a number of companies that are bringing data to the cloud that, and really where we start to differ is kind of the use case or the goal of each of those companies. And so there's people that are very focused on, and, and I would say generally our, our industry is fractured. So there's people that are very focused on energy management and reducing and focusing only on that. There's people that are focused on what we call like facility management, which is more your work orders and your, you know, your maintenance type requests and we are, I think, one of the few players in the, the actual operation of building equipment. So tracking and measuring, like really, we go deep into the core of the building systems 
and to pull that data all the way out, passing through like multiple layers of, of connections to actually get to the cloud. And there's not as many people, players in that space. And the other kind of, our, our company really has three, let's say, as a team, we have three core expertises, I would say. One of those is actually in building operations. So knowing what things we actually have to watch and how heat pumps and boilers and air handling units and all these things connect and actually operate to provide the experience to the space. We have another core competency in software development, technology, machine learning. And then the, the, the third piece that really brings it together is that there's only, it's called master systems integration. And there's only a handful of, of companies in the world that like really kind of know how to get, get this part right. Um, because so when I say master systems integration, I'm talking about, you know, let's, let's say you're building a new building and you want all this information to be digitally enabled. Um, and actually now we're seeing players like Google and, and, and some others and Microsoft enter into the space in the use case of digital twins, digital enablement, which is really about how to actually even organize and categorize this information. Really everybody I've talked about so far is not a direct kind of competitor to us. They're, they're all partners because the space of building management is you need to digitally enable the systems. You need to get them installed. You need people who know how to do the energy management of it and the work order systems. And we come in and we're that operating system that's coordinating all these different pieces together and providing this really foundational database. And the way that we can do that and our, our kind of one of our key differentiators is this master systems integration, which for a brand new building, if you want digitally enabled, and by that I just mean the lighting that you install, the heating and the HVAC equipment that you install, if you want that to come through and talk to the cloud, um, you need somebody who is going to be able to communicate with a vendor, know that system, know what information needs to come on there and how it needs to flow through networks, like communication protocols, and then kind of gateway technology to, to bring all this information together. And so we are this this team that has experience across all these different trades can speak the language of each of these different vendors that are involved in a project and guide them on behalf of the owner to really, you know, create these, these smart building experiences. And so that's really where we have been a leader and become a leader is that people looking to do some of the, the you know the smartest buildings in North America were involved in these projects where not only are there all these these base building systems that I've been talking about, but you know now now there's IoT sensors in this space as well. So think about your occupancy and your people counting, your indoor air quality. Um, you can lighting can have IoT capabilities as well, but you can tie in EV chargers and leak detection. And these things that don't run on the, the building network, which is primarily your, your HVAC controls and that, they want all that. And we're doing, you know, like 10, 15 different API integrations on some of these projects. They want all these different systems to come talk to a single source of truth and a database that is then, by the way, going to push data to a tenant app. And I know this is, this is getting crazy. 
And but the, 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 this is the problem that we solve for that not very few other people on the market can actually do is like to understand the nuances of how all these different players need to connect and then provide a, a flexible enough, you know, database and backend to bring this information in and and push it out to to different players and to really enable all these these smart building use cases. And so the what we are actually leading in is in the consultation, the master systems integration and the software providing for flagship buildings in really large, massive, like smart building portfolios where they want, they have especially new construction. So a lot of our business is renovating, not renovating, but going into a building that already exists, plugging that, plugging in and bringing the data that's already there to the cloud. But when one of these portfolios is, you know, looking to do something exciting and new and building a, a large, you know, billion dollar plus building, hundreds of thousands of square feet, millions of square feet, at least definitely during spec it out, maybe during construction it gets cut back, but they are asking consultants, they're asking us, like, what is the smartest, most efficient, best tenant experience that I can create in this space? And part of that is, yes, we want to be sustainable. Um, we want to do cool things with, with energy management, but also like the, if you're an Amazon of the world or Netflix or one of these large corporations who has kind of realized that putting your people first, focusing on their needs as tenants within the building, providing things like high quality air, airflow, and you know all sorts of other crazy metrics, if you put this person first, you really do need to digitally enable the building to, to, to meet these use cases. And those are a lot of the new construction plot projects and these flagship smart buildings that require, you know, very vast knowledge across these domains of system integration, software technology development, and, then, and building operations. And we're really, you know, having a lot of success being one of the few teams and people in the world that can bring that together in, in a you know, really cohesive and well-packaged way. So for listeners, that probably sounded like a lot, but I think that just goes to show that, you know, especially for a space that most people just take for granted, you walk into a building, if you're going to the store or whatever, and you don't think about like, oh, I, I wonder who's controlling the temperature. It feels quite nice in here. Nobody thinks about that. But for something that people take for granted, there's actually so much that goes behind it. And I think that's what makes it exciting is that because there are so many different moving parts behind the scenes, there's also so many or, or so much opportunity for innovation and for streamlining all of these processes and just making things operate better. So I'm curious from your perspective, where do you see the space being in 10 or 20 years? Like, you know, it can be uh, big changes or it can be specific things. But if you were to imagine how things can innovate in this space, where do you see things in, in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I mean, so this is a super interesting time for real estate overall due to COVID and all the changes and conversations around what is the role of the workspace in the future. And there's lots of talk around, you know, that's going to be, and, and nobody knows, right? Everybody's figuring out and people are going to try different things where the workplace is going to be more collaborative. It's going to be a place to get together to 
to work to you know design work or collaborative thinking and it's going to be flexible hours and all these things that we've enjoyed and so one of the things we look at is in order to to provide that in a way that's sustainable if you just think about flexible hours and the idea of you should run your building based off of how many people are in there like it's crazy there are a lot of commercial buildings today that have you know no people or the amount of people that have been in them for the last 12 months is like five or ten percent or even less than than what it typically is and the way that the buildings are being operated has not changed at all and so and i think it's kind of for the last couple decades it's been happy fun land to be a property manager because everybody worked in the office and it was there was no other Nobody even thought about working from home. You know, very few people had all these remote teams and stuff. And so now, and and what that meant is you always had, you know, full occupancy. wasn't that hard to find more tenants and location, location, location was the primary driver. But going forward, you actually need, and I think it's going to be a, a big challenge for a lot of these property managers, is how do I get people into my space? How do I get people excited about this building? It's, it's a very expensive asset that I've purchased. And it has a lot of cost to even maintain and operate it on a, on a weekly and a monthly basis and yearly. So what am I doing now to bring people in? I think it's a total rethinking of not just how the tenants want to use the space, but actually how we operate them. And so that's that's really exciting. And the the key to that is you know getting this information into the cloud where it can dynamically adjust and be responsive to the humans in there. As far as kind of how I see things playing out over the next 10, 20 years, I think this industry is just like slow moving. It's a nature, it's partly due to the nature of the fact that a building can last for a hundred years, whereas an iPhone lasts for two years, three years at most. And so you get much more rapid innovation on a product like that. But with a hundred year life cycle, um, I think some of the projects we're working on now some of these, these flagship smart buildings for portfolios and across the world are going to be buildings that people look at for years and decades to come to say, uh, you know, this is an example of, of future technology. And I, I'm going to get into kind of how that looks. And that I think that's also a really exciting opportunity for a real estate developer or a property owner, real estate firm right now to be making moves like this, like with so much changing, this is the time to really establish yourself as a market leader, as a, as a real estate owner. And, you know, really, really what we're doing is we are surfacing these base building systems so that now you can interact with them. Now you can API with them. That's, that's the answer to play. You need that. And then the question becomes what IOT technology exists today and is it going to exist in the future? That's going to provide a better experience for my tenants. It's going to provide, uh, you know, better operating margins for for this building. And so right now, the hot ones are, you know, air quality and occupancy for sure. The uh, electric vehicle charging. There's a lot of parking solutions, and these things, especially as like, it, and so so I think I think that's the question. That's the change. It's going to be what IoT. Can I put in my spaces that's going to provide value to my tenants? It's going to make people feel comfortable, to, especially in the short term, feel comfortable to go back into the office. To, and 
And so I, I think the industry is going to move slowly, but I think it's really about IoT and coordinating those those systems for the benefits of of the people inside of them and putting those people first. Yeah, for sure. I, I will be curious to see what sorts of solutions commercial buildings come up with to make people feel safer, you know, in light of COVID and all of these things. Even people talk about going back to normal, but I don't think we're ever going to go back to the normal that we knew in the past. I think people are always going to be a little more conscious about public health compared to how we were before. And, you know, it will be interesting to see what solutions commercial buildings come up with to lure people back into their businesses and back to their offices and things like that make people feel safe. So we'll be curious to see that. We're seeing a lot of people, not only are they installing this, it's the idea of having an app that gives me information on my building. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm in a WeWork and WeWork's been doing this for a long time where you can see, you know, you can book rooms and you can do these things as well. And just the idea of as you're saying, like, how do we make people more comfortable? It's showing that when I'm booking the room, not only like, you know, giving me the ability to see how, how many people and how, what the frequency of that's been booked. I know here, if, if you're like changing people, there's not that many people in this building right now, but um, if it is, you know, they might even do a cleaning in between, in between booking sessions and being transparent about that and reflecting it back to your tenants around, this is what's happening in your space. Here's your amenities. Simple things also like, you know, to, to order order food through my building app because all these restaurants near me, like tenants might change, but those restaurants are still always going to be located next, you know, near my building. And so getting them, you know, relationships with, with the platforms just through this technology stuff is, has been also something else we're seeing a lot of too. Got it. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk to you more about your what you do as the director of operations and how you sort of rose so quickly from being a project manager, well, right out of college to, mm -hmm. I think, was it a year or less than two years later that you're now the director of operations at Code Labs? Talk, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I started at Code in, in May of 2019. Um, actually, I graduated and then on a Friday, and then on a Saturday, I, I got on a plane. I flew to Florida to, to visit one of our clients on site there. And uh, so I was immediately, you know, thrown thrown into the works. Uh, I had known the founders, uh, Eddie and Etra Demai, from just being involved in the startup community in Detroit. One of the reasons I was really attracted to, to Code Labs and the top priority for me was picking uh, a team and leadership that I really believed in. And where I saw opportunities for growth of, and one, okay, so I wanted a team that I thought these were good leaders that would believe in me and give me these opportunities. The other kind of requirement that I had is I had to kind of believe in the, in the company and its opportunity to, to grow in the space because one of the things I was seeking was, you know, advancement, responsibility, these types of opportunities. And you need to be a growing company in, in order to, you know, unlock some of those things. Because if you can have the best team and have the be the best worker in the world, but if your company is not growing, there, there's not an opportunity to grow up. So I started out in, in a project management role where I was doing a lot of client success, facing things, working with our team in Kosovo. And so that was also an interesting dynamic. 
I was primarily focused on an account in Florida to begin with. And so from day one, I was working remotely with people in Florida, with our team in Kosovo, who's six hours ahead in Europe. And then there was a consultant involved in, in Florida as well, or in California. And I was, you know, this product manager, account manager on here and working across a nine hour time gap and, and really being the, the primary person in our company dedicated to client success. Um, I took on a, a lot of responsibility there and I guess communication was was key. And then I kind of gave our, our founder who was at the time pretty involved in, in the project and with that client as well, slowly just started pulling things off his plate and taking on more responsibility for, for myself and giving him some, some breathing room. And I think, you know, one of the things he, he saw, not just him, but also product manager, more on the technical side, developing the software with us, doing some custom integrations for, for a client in Florida. This is Ard. I was able to, to work with Ard as well and take some of the things off his plate. And so, because really we had, you know, a handful of people interacting with the client, very focused on customer success. One of the things we, I think we do best here and that we try to do is just provide like white glove customer service. And with time differences and just naturally being a founder, you got 10 million other things to think about. And so I kind of just saw this opportunity to like really pay attention to what my team needed and take on responsibility and help them. And that kind of grew my role and I was, you know, just doing well in that. I was able to stay on top and really just communication follow-up, I think is the key. I don't think it's that hard to, uh, I think if you can do communication well and, and stay on top of people, then project management is like, it's not, it, it's okay. And then COVID hit and that kind of completely shook up, you know, a lot of what we were doing up until that point, we were, Code Labs is essentially in stealth mode where we had two large clients that we were, you know, building technology for doing product iteration, they had took a bet on us early on and they trusted us to, to deliver. And so for the first two, three years of our company, we were solely focused on them and building a product that just solved more and more of their problems with always with the idea of scaling and taking this to the next level. And so prior to COVID, we actually didn't do too much work to like, to bring on new clients. We just focused on who we had. COVID hit, whole real estate market's changing. You know, we're like, what the heck's going on? We need to make sure that, we, you know, get things moving, can continue to pay our people, continue to grow, and, you know, be this billion dollar plus company that we want to be. And so we shuffled around some, some team members and some budgets and, I moved away from, you know, being focused on that one dedicated account and stepped into this director of operations role where now we're two years in, we're at, there's probably three years into our company. We have 50 people on our team and we really only have a handful of clients at this point. And also with 40 of those team members being in Kosovo and, you know, five to 10 being here in Detroit, where this is your business and your sales operations, you, what we experience here in Detroit is the scope and scale of a company that's at 50 people. And then sometimes the, the time changes or just 
the extra feedback that's in the room when you're sitting next to a human being. You know, we, we need to iterate quickly during COVID. And I think, you know, learning and evolving and, and making changes fastly, especially when you're coming out of stealth type mode, and not that we were officially in stealth or anything, but as you're going through that change, like rapid growth and rapid execution is, is critical. And so as director of operations, the first, which let's say, you know, I stepped into this role in May or June of, of 2020, we started building out sales processes, um, customer success, uh, we had customer success, but, you know, marketing, all these other different pieces that we now had to add on and grow to our business. And my approach to that, we brought some people over from Rocket Fiber, which uh, one of our co-founders had co-founded this company previously, and they had a successful exit. And so the timing was right, we brought some people over. And so now we have a sales leader, we have uh, another co-founder that's, that's all hands on board, helping manage this transition. And uh, what I just started doing is like reading books uh, on, I read, we read, and this is kind of generally my approach to taking on a, a new experience is I'm gonna go out and find the best book on sales operations that exists. And that makes sense for our company. For us, it was Predictable Revenue, written by the, the VP of sales at Salesforce and how they scaled that. And I'm gonna internalize all that information. And then I'm gonna take back and think and work with my team here to figure out how we build that same similar process, the one that makes sense for us, into our company. And so within the you know first 90 days of, me stepping in this role, we built out a um, sales automation campaign that was kind of predict the whole idea of predictable revenue is you predictably are bringing in new clients, new opportunities. And we got that up and running and it's like, oh shoot, now we have to increase our capacity as like sales human beings have these conversations to do the follow-ups. So then we started, you know, putting some team members in place who could manage that existing process that was now built, this predictable revenue engine. And then now we needed to build a sales process of what, and, and so I'm naturally, I think, a um, more of a generalist than a specialist. I don't have any one particular thing that I think I'm, you know, can, can crush, but I think I can do a lot of things pretty well. And so I stepped into the sales role and was working with, uh, you know, prospects and they would be asking us for marketing collateral and, you know, give me more information on your product and these other things that we just didn't necessarily have because of the way that we got to where we were focused on, you know, our really large clients doing product iteration. We didn't have a lot of these things. And then, so I started doing design work and writing marketing campaigns and like doing all this other stuff to just build the foundation that, we could, you know, as we grew the team, we could set people up to, to manage that. And so um, really, and, and then, you know, now uh, I'm focused on, on active projects where we're actually installing, implementing our technology. How are we providing customer service? Trying to build all these things in a scalable way. So really what I'm doing as, as director of operations is if there's any sort of area where we don't yet have process or people, I can sometimes step in and fulfill definitely not the whole role of working with team members, but fulfill part of that role to, you know, grow that process and generally just be a buffer to while, while we take time to build that up. And then the other part is having such familiar, intimate knowledge with all these things that we've stood up and having worked with the entire team over the past, you know, almost two years is then 
looking at ways, how can we streamline these flows, make these things work even better? How can we put more and better people into place to help us reach that, that next level of, of scale? And so it's constantly, you know, it's building the plane as you fly it and then finding the, the right person to, to put in that cockpit to then drive, drive it forward after that. And it's been like a whole heck of a crazy, you know, time even, even getting to this point that, that we're at now. Um, and, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, I think you just described a lot of the pain points and a, and a very familiar journey for many of our listeners who are in the startup world. So having basically gone from college to director of operations at a fast growing startup in two years, what would you say is your best piece of advice for, say, somebody in college who wants to end up in your position one day? And especially here's a fun fact is you were actually an engineering major in college, which I was surprised to learn because having, I'm sure anybody listening to this, having heard you say what you just said, it would think that you were maybe a business major or definitely not, this is not the typical track for an engineering major. So talk a little bit more about that and what advice do you have somebody, you know, maybe going through college that wants to be in your position? Yeah. So, so I studied computer science engineering. I always joke that I can only code with a K, which is code labs. Because I came out of, you know, University of Michigan, not really software development wasn't my focus. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And I think I had a lot of these like general tendencies during that time. And I just found a way to, to pass my classes. But, you know, my, my advice and then so actually I went through college and I went and joined a fellowship called Venture for America where myself and, you know, 200 other very talented, entrepreneurial, interested folks from across the United States, you know, signed up to, to move to cities like Detroit, Cleveland, Birmingham, Alabama, and do these things. So I've done a lot of, you know, processing and, and thinking about, you know, because I had to make that decision to to do that and come to a place like Detroit, where most of your friends are going to, to California or New York or, you know, some of these cool places. And so I have thought a, a lot about, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and uh, why I think this was the right thing for me. The number, uh, kind of the, the criteria, and I mentioned them already, like uh, a few of them, is that I would recommend or give advice to somebody is, is focus on the team first. Um, the team is the, the group of human beings that actually cares about who you are, is making sure and working at a high growth startup is stressful, especially if you're taking on more and more responsibility and doing things that you're not comfortable with and outside your comfort zone. Like it's a, it's a really stressful situation. And so finding people that you think are good human beings, I was fortunate to have some interaction with startups in Detroit and to, to have known um, Eddie through some internships, to know that he was uh, a leader that I wanted to, to work with. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's important in trying to, to talk to whatever company you're looking at about their culture, uh, about their leadership, and, and you know, get, get the sense of how supported they feel by these people. I, I think that's, that's a really big deal, and, and that makes a world of difference for everything else that happens Later on, and then you know the, the second thing I, I would advise to look for is just a, a high growth opportunity. And, and and this is maybe let me contextualize this this advice. I think this advice is best suited for somebody who's looking 
to get on a rocket ship and just go. And so I would look for an amazing team. I would look for a, a company that is, you know, you could, VCs will talk all day about what makes a, a good company in terms of having the right market size, having a, a you know, a certain type of product or whatever. But, and I didn't know too much about the building industry, but, you know, just generally thinking this is a technology company. Uh, I know these founders have built previous companies before and they've tried to scale things and they've tried to do big things. And so when I look at that, it at least tells me that, that the desire to do big things is there. And then the things I actually focused on the least, and this is me, me personally, was the role itself. So I knew, I think the, also I think the, the place that you live, maybe less so now is, is interesting, but I think it's important where you live. But I, the role, the way I saw it is I'm going to go into this company. I'm going to be a positive person. I'm going to work my ass off and I'm going to look for ways to solve problems internally and externally. And I'm going to do whatever is asked of me and more. And so I started out, you know, when I first got that project manager title, that was kind of just a, a fancy title. Really what I was was like customer support. But there was opportunity to grow within that role. And a big part of that is, you know, my leader Etchard at the time and still to this day saw the way I was approaching these problems and gave me an opportunity to get more and more responsibility. So coming back to the people and it helped that we were growing our company. And so what really started as support, which wasn't something that I, you know, loved or was excited about, like debugging this app and going through and doing these things. I just tried to crush that and to crush every type of thing that I could and to be as positive as possible, realizing that, man, everybody here who's trying to really hard to make this company work is very well-intentioned. One of my favorite things I learned from Venture for America was uh, to assume positive intent. I think people are trying to, to do well. They're trying to be positive and we all have times where we're stressed out and have other things going on. And so I, I just treated people with respect, worked my ass off. And then, you know, I think that role at a growing company is going to change over time. So I wouldn't get too worried about this isn't the right role. Coming out of college, you can't be, I mean, it's very unlikely that you're going to have some, some, some big, awesome title. Just focus on execution and focus on being a good human being who is surrounded by good human beings. And then I, I think it worked out, um, or at least, you know, that, that's the way we, we tried to run things at Code Labs. Yeah, and I can relate to so much of that from my personal experience too. And what I found is that when I'm at a company that I feel really passionately about and I love work the people at the company, I don't even think twice about my title. Like I don't even know what my title is. I could care less, you know, because I just love being at the company so much. Whereas on the flip side, if I'm at a company that maybe I don't love as much, I don't feel as passionately about, then I'm kind of sitting around twirling my thumbs, you know, trying to wasting my my thinking and my mind on things that don't matter, like what's my title, how do I get a better title, you know, things like that that don't actually matter. So I can completely relate. I think you just started a new role too in the blockchain space, so congrats. I did, yeah. Thank you so much. We'll have to talk offline about that more because I know uh, I've seen you 
I think tweet or show some interest in that. So we have to chat more about that. Um, Okay, so this next segment, speaking of Twitter, is the perfect segue because this next segment is called Explain Your Tweet. And what I've done is I've gone through your Twitter and I've just pulled out a few tweets that I found to be interesting or controversial or whatever the case may be. And I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself. All right. You ready for this? You seem nervous. I'm a little nervous, so it's okay. All right. I, I try to pull some pretty n- neutral. I know you had some fiery ones in there, but I try to pull some pretty neutral ones. So let's let's just dive on in. The first one, it's actually, I want to pull out two tweets that are related. The first one you tweeted just yesterday, you said, social networks are our digital cities, how we exchange information, find entertainment, and even purchase goods in some cases. And I'm going to tie that back to a tweet that you tweeted out on December 9th, 2020. You said, people have invested in cities for years, time, taxes, energy, and effort. I'm investing in Detroit, Michigan, but big believer in Birmingham, Alabama, Cleveland, Ohio, and more. And so obviously you are in Detroit now and you know, you've alluded to this several times in the interview that you chose Detroit for a reason and there was a lot of thinking that went into that. And then also Birmingham, Alabama and Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio were mentioned and I'm sort of just wondering why those cities, you know, and is, is there something bigger behind those tweets that you like to talk about? Yes, yes. I, I love this question. I've been fascinated about cities for for multiple years now. I look at a city as this. I, actually, my favorite way to, to think about it is that a city is a product. It's something I am a user of the city of Detroit. And all the benefits and the product experiences I get out of that are, you know, re- related to the, the things I do for entertainment, the people that are there, the opportunities that are available for me, music, arts, and culture are are big parts of, of cities. And for me, specifically with Detroit, it's interesting kind of growing up in, in Michigan over the, the, the past couple of decades, Detroit has not had the best reputation, uh, as I'm sure, you know, many people listening to this will, will think that there's not all, too much activity happening in here from you know technology startup standpoint but and, and so so my entire life I grew up 30 minutes outside the city and almost never came down here and then actually in, in 2017 in the summer I had a friend who was working at a company rocket fiber and another friend working at Detroit venture partners which are, are I guess venture partners is the VC firm here and rocket fibers is the fastest internet one of the fastest internet companies in the United States and so to me, uh, the city that was my backyard that I had almost never been to, I go and visit my friend and we're riding this new public transit system called the Q-Line. And I'm hearing them. I'm like, so what are you guys up to? And they're telling me these things. And I'm like, there's no way. Like, how is this happening in Detroit? It feels like this is never what I thought of. And so since there was that that gap between, you know, like I thought Detroit was here and then what my friends were telling me was here and what I was seeing with my own eyes is my – like first time as an adult visiting the, the city, I was just blown away. And I was, you know, blown away by, by how big that gap was and the fact that like it existed and I didn't know about it. And so then I just dug in and like, what the heck else is going on within Detroit? We find out there's this whole, you know, booming startup scene and there's lots of technology happening here. And so that, that, that drew me into Detroit as well. And then I started to, 
to you know think bigger about where else might this be happening in the United States and learn about you know there's things like Rise of the Rest. Steve Case goes around on a bus to visit some of these cool cities with emerging tech ecosystems. Birmingham, Alabama, Miami, Austin, Texas was one you know that people were talking about a few years ago, and then now it's really you know has really picked up a lot. And so I started looking at these other different programs that were, were bringing to light opportunities within these cities and a joint venture for America. And so to, to me, cities are ways that we get almost all – they're one of the biggest contributors of value to us outside of work. Like everything else that happens is determined by the city and the people that are there. I – had a, a little idea. I actually worked on it with Andrew Ehrenberg. Um, we just pitched for a competition there to kind of create a, a stock market for cities. And it's this idea that, okay, I see good things happening in Detroit. I was a college student at the time. I couldn't afford to go out and buy real estate. Even if I wanted to buy real estate, even if I had the means to buy real estate, there's a lot of factors like location and, you know, just generally like owning a building that those are very hard things to do but what I could easily go on Robinhood or on some other app and buy stock in a company and I don't need to know anything about that industry or whatever and yet I'm kind of profiting and gaining from the fact that this is a growing space and you know really this idea of like okay it's very hard to do this for a city how can I get a return on my investment. One way is to actually live there. I view my rent as my subscription cost to, to be in Detroit. And so, you know, it led me down this whole path of how cities are just cool. For Birmingham, Cleveland, these are both um, Venture for America cities as well. And the thing about Birmingham, Alabama, so I've actually never never been there, but I have a lot of friends who, who live in and work there. And the way that knowing what I went through and what I saw in Detroit and how I talk about the city to other people who haven't been here and the energy that I used to express that and the positivity and the optimism, more so I saw more of that from Birmingham, Alabama and people living and working in Birmingham, Alabama than I did in any other Venture for America city. And to me, that was like fascinating. I saw the same thing with Austin too. There was like for a couple of years, you couldn't get people to stop talking about opportunities in Austin. And to me, that that's just so, so fascinating. And if I zoom, zoom way out, there's a metric for products called net promoter score. That is essentially how likely is somebody to recommend your product or service to a friend, to a product or service to a friend. And thinking just really big picture, it's like, okay, America had a fantastic net promoter score for, you know, centuries and, and, and decades when people would say that roads are paved with gold, it's the land of opportunity. And what happened? All the smart, ambitious people came to this place seeking out those or seeking out a better life. And it, it turned us into, you know, a really fantastic melting pot of a country. And then you saw the same thing happen in San Francisco, where everybody was talking about in California in general, like the, the part of that is maybe the gold rush, but there was this net promoter score where if you talk to anybody who was there, they were positively promoting that place. And that is what attracts new people to go there. 
And so I started just using all these things that I learned about products and startups in general and applying those frameworks to cities and, um, you know, started like being able to tease out interesting insights like, like that. So check out, you know, Venture for America. They have 15 different cities that were supporting there's fantastic startup communities within all of them. Really cool companies inside there. Birmingham, Alabama, I see as a kind of a leader in energy technology, green technology. And it's the type of thing that, you know, if you're looking for something a little bit different and willing to, you know, go somewhere where you make a difference. I have a favorite quote about Detroit, that these cities give you the opportunity to do that. So this quote about Detroit is, Detroit is big enough that it matters in the world, but small enough that you matter in it. And I, I just think that's so, so true for a, a lot of these places. And that's one of my values, kind of just being here in the Midwest where I want to make an impact where I go. I want to matter at the company that I'm in. I want to matter you know, to the other things that I do for my, my community. Uh, I think that element and the, the, the value that you can get out of that by engaging your community in those ways is kind of underrated. And I think a lot of these cities, Venture for America, Rise of the Rest, are doing a good job to spotlight these opportunities for, for people. Yeah, for sure. I also grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. And I remember growing up, it was like everybody's goal to get out of Detroit and out of Michigan in general. Yeah. And then it, it was only like a couple years after I graduated that... I think Quicken Loans became a big thing there and hired all of these college grads and a bunch of my friends were living in Detroit and Royal Oak became a thing. And, you know, now a decade later, it's like Detroit is nothing like the Detroit that I remember growing up. Like I go and visit friends in Midtown and Midtown is like so vibrant. Like if you only stayed in Midtown for a couple blocks, like you wouldn't know the difference between that or Chicago, you know, or a big city. So I think that's fascinating. And and my husband and I actually, you know, uh, were looking into sort of going to a smaller city too. Like you said, it's somewhere that you can make a difference and somewhere just, you know, that more of like an up and coming city and investing in a city like that. And Detroit was on our radar we settled on uh, Spokane, Washington, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. If I'm, We've done some research, and I guess what's happening right now is that Seattle is bursting. Like All the young people are moving to Seattle, and the tech scene there is overflowing. The people are overflowing, and so a lot of tech companies are starting to move out east to Spokane since that's the second largest city in Washington. So anyway, we can chat more about that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It seems like you're better at doing research on cities than I probably am. Okay, all right, so next tweet that I pulled up. On December 8th, 2020, you tweeted, the worst thing for a bad product is good marketing. Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know who, someone said this to me once, but it's the idea that I think... I was tweeting in response to this guy, Jake Paul, this internet phenomenon, who was trying to promote himself for a fight. And he was making a lot of people really mad because he, I mean, he wasn't doing it the right way. He was doing his marketing really well. And he was just, you know, creating a lot of negative press and media for himself. I think you could look at, you know, President, former President Trump as an, also an example of this tweet where he is a phenomenal marketer, but people didn't like the product and that really didn't work out well for him. And, you know, so that wasn't necessarily within 
the context of a startup, but I, I think it's very true that there are people out there, companies out there that are kind of pushing products that don't really do what they say they're going to do, but there's a lot of marketing hype behind them or they have good marketing teams. The Maybe the, the contrary to that statement is, is an example like Tesla, where they have almost no marketing, but they have a fantastic product. And so the really you want the product to market itself. You want the company and the results and the things that they're doing to speak for themselves. And if you have something that doesn't work and you go and market and sell the heck out of it and you try to onboard users, you know, you really have one chance to make a first impression. And if you don't deliver on that, then, you know, that that's, that's, I think that's the essence of the, the tweet is that you, you, be prepared to deliver on what you say you're going to, to do. For sure. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. That makes, I, I understand now. All right. And then the last tweet I pulled up is on December 15th, 2020, you tweeted, this is a poll actually, why aren't snack subscriptions bigger? Do y'all really like shopping? Right, I don't really care about the shopping bit, but I just wanted to ask what would be the top three snack subscription boxes that you would subscribe to if they existed? Oh man. So definitely like goldfish is my favorite snack. Goldfish, Chex Mix, probably got to throw like some sort of, of drink or even maybe like, you know, you like to try new things and this type of, there's like a stitch fix. And I constantly find myself struggling with lunch here. I think a lot of people do this like ordering you know, trying to get something new and you just end up picking the same thing off, off the shelf. So maybe some, a little bit of variety in, in here as well. I like that. My sister, Hope, who you're friends with, actually just got me a subscription to a rare beer club. So mm -hmm. it's like all these rare beers that I wouldn't find on the shelves of the grocery store. And that's really cool. So you could have like a rare snack subscription box or something like that. All right. Okay, cool. So good job on getting through explain your tweet. I know this is this segment always makes people a little bit nervous, but that wasn't so bad, right? No, no, that was not bad. Okay, cool. All right. So clearly you spent a lot of your time thinking about, you know, work and all of this stuff. I don't know how you have time for anything else, but tell people more about who Michael is as a person outside of work. What are some things you like to do? Tell people more about who you are. Yeah. Yeah. So my favorite kind of like hobbies or things, uh, I would say work is a big focus uh, and part of my life. I like books, board games. I am recently also spending a lot more time home or just by myself during COVID. I found some um, new kind of creative outlets, kind of graphic design. Um, I got into a, a platform called StockX which is kind of the stock market of things. It's a company here in Detroit and it's a, it's a fashion kind of startup where you can buy really kind of interesting clothes or like these hype beast uh, outfits. And that's never something I thought I would get into. I actually bought my first pair of sneakers with the idea that they would be an investment when the whole, it was in March, the whole market was, was dropping because of COVID. And then I saw sneaker prices on StockX, like, staying the same. And I was like, man, it's really interesting. Let me just buy a pair. And that led to this whole wave of like, you know, uh, sneakers and, and different, different clothing products that would, I would try to buy. But yeah, I'd say, you know, outside of some of these, these new things I've been exploring like that, as well as, you know, kind of marketing and design, I've been, I, I love to read and, and everything from, from fiction to like 
work type books, personal development and this. And then board games is, I think, a totally underrated hobby that people don't do enough. And I love the, the you know competitive environment, the simulated universe where there's a very clear goal. And maybe that's the part engineer in me that is talking, where I can just look at the, the pieces on the board and uh, you know try to try to figure out how, how to win, how to have fun. Yeah, are you a big chess player? Uh, I do play chess. I just started watching the Queen's Gambit as well. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I think everybody's a big chess player after the Queen's Gambit came out. Isn't it? Weren't chess boards sold out? Like you couldn't even buy them around Christmas time. Yeah, they they spiked for sure. But I'm only on uh, like episode three or four, so no, no spoilers. All right, we won't talk about it. There's only a few more. It's a pretty short series, but really good, really solid TV watching. What are some of the, your favorite books that you've read lately since a lot of people are still quarantining and need something to do? So from uh, one of the ones I most read recently was called Foundation. It was a book actually that Elon Musk put on my radar and it's a tale of galactic proportions. A galactic empire is ruling and the civilization, some person, this guy Harry Seldon, predicts that the civilization is on a decline. He decides to set up two things that he calls foundations, centers of, of knowledge, human knowledge throughout the universe with the goal of, you know, minimizing the amount of time and the risk of dark ages for humanity. So super fascinating book, definitely an Elon Musk type vibe from, from I think it actually influenced him a lot. Outside of that, uh, I've, been one of the things I've been working on is writing and how to write well and, and to write better. And so I read a book called Everybody Writes, and it really kind of opened my eyes, one, to the quality of writing, but two, how frequently we we use this skill and how really paying attention to subtle changes in the words that we use and how we, we place them you know, not only has a big effect on how we deliver that, how that message is delivered to our audience, but, you know, huge, a lot of things from everything from social media. So I've been tweeting a lot more. I would say that's one of my new hobbies and all to kind of practice this this skill of writing. Um, There's another person. It's not a book per se, but Julian Shapiro uh, is someone on Twitter who I think is probably one of the best Persons to learn about writing, how to write well from. Uh, I, I love his his content and, and what he puts out. And then Sadie, Sadie Faith Anderson, just some other kind of social media people that I've kind of been learning this, this skill from. So Writing Well is a book I read recently, found Foundation, and then probably some other kind of marketing-related books because that was a, a new skill that I had to pick up in the last couple of months. Someone literally just sent me a, a Twitter thread from Julian is it Shapiro this, this morning? And it was like this deep dive into how to write well with like all these actionable tips and stuff. And I was like, how have I not seen this guy yet? Cause this is awesome. And he, he does those Twitter threads like regular on the regular, right? Yeah. Like one or two a week. So that's, that's, I love his content. 
Yeah, for sure. Same. All right. Well, thanks so much, Michael. I, I'm sorry we went over time. Hopefully you don't have a super busy day, although you probably do because you're doing a million things in your job. But I really appreciate you being here. Before you go, can you just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you, follow your awesome tweets, and then where they can learn more about Code Labs as well? Yeah, so on, on Twitter, M.M. Kowalczyk, so M-M-K-O-V-A-L-C-I-K. That's probably the best place to follow me if you want to hear from things about things I'm saying or get in touch with me. Um, also, I guess email Michael at Code Labs if you want to talk smart buildings, technology. I'm really big. I love to give back to other young entrepreneurs, anybody that I think I can help. If there's anything today about that you thought was interesting from career-wise or, or whatever, and you want to talk more about your situation and ask me some questions or whatever it is, uh, I'm more than happy to to connect and, and do what I can to, to help anyone. So That's awesome. Thank you, Michael. And Code Labs website is just codelabs.com, right? Code with a K. Yes, Code with a K. Okay, awesome. We will include all of that in the show notes so it's easy for people to find. Thanks again, Michael. This was so great. And best of luck with everything. And we'll have to keep in touch. We've got things to talk about. We've got to talk about blockchain and Spokane and all these great things. Yes, let's do it. All right. All right. Thanks, Michael. Talk to you later. Have a great night. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Startup Happy Hour. If something we said today resonated with you, please share this episode on social media and continue the conversation with us at startuphappyhourpodcast.com or on our social media channels linked in the show notes. See you next week.